You're about to listen to a message from the LifePoint Church, a warm and friendly home for the young at heart. Okay, so we have three speakers here today, Bolanle, Bambo, and Timmy. Three of them are fantastic people, and we're actually going to have Timmy come up first. Timmy is the MD of LifeBank. How many people know LifeBank? LifeBank? Okay, LifeBank is Nigeria's, I believe, premier blood bank. The first? Distribution, exactly, blood distribution company. Hopefully, we never need their services. <laughs> but um, I think Tammy is doing fantastic stuff in the healthcare space in Nigeria, and we're so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'll tell you, fun story. Last month, she won a grant of $250,000. So if you don't think LifeBank is doing something good, that should tell you that that's a big thing. So Tammy, over to you. Please tell us a bit more about your story, and then we'll go on to Balanle and then Bambo. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Apologies for how I showed up. Uh, I'm coming from a hospital, and uh, we had to scrub in. Um, thank you. And that's what I have to go back somewhere else, um, and, and that's why I had to uh, come back up here. Thank you. <laughs> um, so when Folu called me and told me about purpose, I think that's one of my... Prim that's one of the first things um, that I like. To, it's one of the things I love talking about uh, because I think it's really made a difference in my life um, in sort of like leaning into purpose. Um, I grew up here in Nigeria. I was born in Nigeria. Um, yeah. um, moved to the US with my, my family. Um, grew up there, completed my education. And then eight years ago, um, I had a baby. No, sorry, eight years ago, I actually moved to Nigeria because of, um, okay, let me start from the beginning, right? So as an American, I was um, in grad school and I was studying to be a manager. Um, I really like operations, I like managing things, so I went to get my master's in management. And my school had something interesting. They told us to go back to anywhere in the world and try to solve problems in those places. So I decided, of course, I'm of Nigerian descent. I'm coming back to Nigeria. I was sent to northern Nigeria, uh, where I worked for uh, DFID. Um, and we were doing sort of household surveys. And just one evening, we managed to enter, a one morning we managed to enter a village and we saw a girl who was about my age at the time, at the time I was 23, very young. My mom could not believe I was living in Jigawa, uh, Jigawa State in Kano, uh, trying to do important um, work and trying to learn how to manage in really tough places. And we met a girl who had been uh, in, in childbirth for a few days and Basically, everybody, our family, uh, in-laws, were waiting for her to die. Um, they were used to, you know, women give birth at home. Um, if you had a complication, then you're going to die. And it's really just simple. And if you are lucky and you don't have a complication, then you have a baby. So it was always like a roll of dice every time um, someone got pregnant. So they were waiting for her to die. I remember really having a freak out. Um, during that time, locked myself in my hotel room and cried for days, mainly because I knew how privileged I was and, and I knew how nothing in my life would let me sort of like, 
my parents would not wait for me to die of something that they could have possibly solved. So that was where all this purpose started. Now, it's really random that I had this experience. I always feel like something, God, was moving me towards a place. And I have to be clear, um, I was always reluctant. I never, there was nowhere that I thought of my life standing in front of you having this sort of conversation. Um, there is no way, no vision, no dream about what my life would look like that involved the things that I get to do every single day, that involves the sort of impact that LifeBank has been able to have. So I was always reluctant. You know, I felt like God was dragging me and pulling me towards what vision he had for my life. And I never wanted that because I had a vision, a separate vision that included spas and, and <laughs> a lot of lovely, lovely, lovely lifestyle in the U.S. So that was the first thing. The next thing is I went back home again, like I mentioned, reluctant. I went back to the U.S., uh, lived just basically try to forget. Um, the lady's name was Aisha, so she was basically haunting me because I couldn't forget her and I couldn't forget um, what happened to her. She survived, uh, but the baby did not. But I just remember, just could not forget her. Um, then I moved back to Nigeria after a few years, got married, um, got a really great job where I got to make movies about healthcare and it was really fantastic. I enjoyed my job. Um, then I got pregnant. I went back home to the US where my parents live and um, got the worst possible experience that anyone could get during childbirth. I was very lucky to have excellent doctors uh, in Minnesota and I was very lucky that myself and my son survived. Now my little boy is five years old, almost six likes to say, um, and this is where everything really changed for me. So like I mentioned, reluctance all along. Um, but after his birth, I moved him, myself, uh, we, made, we came back to Nigeria. And I could not forget, you know, the plight that I faced and the plight. And funny enough, the condition that Aisha had in, in Kano was the exact same condition I had in Minnesota. And then no one was waiting for me to die. I got emergency C-section within um, 24 hours. She had to wait three days and she was not going to get access to that. So I just, I couldn't, now it was personal. Because maybe if I had not, you know, maybe if God had not put me in that position to have um, a breech birth that needed to now be surgically, the baby now needed to be surgically removed, maybe I would never have leaned into my, into his vision for me. Maybe to me, I felt like God was pulling me in the direction of this work. So I moved back to Nigeria. I started reading about and talking to everybody about blood, about what kills women. Found a postpartum hemorrhage. So postpartum hemorrhage is the number one killer of women in childbirth in the world. Um, it is, and it just doesn't kill them, it kills them quickly. So within two hours, within 20 minutes or two hours of getting postpartum hemorrhage, a woman is dead. Uh, so it's a catastrophic thing, it's big and it's quick. So when I found this, and at the same time, we, I learned, I went to a blood bank and they started speaking to me about this, their processes, found out they discard blood. So blood routinely gets expired uh, in, in blood banks across the city. So you had 
shortage and surplus at the same time in the same market. And you had people constantly being buried uh, because at the minute that they needed it, there was no blood in their hospital. Again, I had a great job. And not just a great job, not just a job I liked, I was also paid in Forex. So as you can know, that it was a really, really difficult um, decision to make. And I remember walking into a co-creation um, co hub uh, in Yaba, telling them, and I told them about my idea to sort of like link blood banks to hospital. And I remember they told me, oh, for us to invest in you and really help you grow this idea into a business, you're going to have to quit your job. Now, I had a baby. It was about you know a year and a half at the time. I was paid in dollars. You know, I got to work because it was an American company. I got to work in my pajamas at home, and it was a really like nice Lagos lifestyle. And I really wanted to keep that, but purpose. I was being dragged towards solving this problem and solving it once and for all. I didn't want to do it, I have to tell you. I was never, I'm not a brave person. I am not actually, like, um, I'm not extroverted, I'm not gregarious, I'm not the classic entrepreneur or somebody who, you know, was constantly ready to go. But God was pulling me towards this direction and I couldn't look away. I could not look away. No matter what I wanted to do, no matter how, the vision I had for my life, I simply could not give away. I could not look away and I could not forget what God wanted me to do. So I started Life Bank. And I must tell you, part of the things about, I like to say, part of the secret about leaning into the vision of God's, uh, the vision God has for your life, is that he's going to make all the tools available for you to actually succeed in it. Because I always tell, like, I am always like, I did not, you know, I was, I had a life, eh? you know. Every time something bad happens, I, I, I tell myself, every time there's a difficulty, I say, God, I had a life. Eh? I had a nice job. Cars. Eh? I had, I could go to spa every weekend if I wanted. I had the classic, you know, upper middle class lifestyle in Lagos, and I had that. And that it was you that said, startup is the way. You understand? It was you that said, you must leave all of that behind. You must leave. I literally quit my job. I sent in my resignation. My boss did not understand. What are you doing? You're doing something about blood. What? But I did it. So anytime something goes wrong at Life Bank, I tell God, I said, I say, I was sitting in my house, eating my food with my children and my husband. You said, I must do this work. You have to make it happen. So I even think sometimes it's like quarreling with God because I, I'm just like, you know, it's you. I, you know, it's you. You said I should do this. And now this is happening. You know, you said, you said this is the vision for my life. This is the vision for my life. There, you know, my birthday was a few weeks ago and I was listening to a song by Fernando Ortega. And one of the lyrics that made me really cry was, I fear where you have brought me, mysterious God. And that is the thing that really, really resonates with where I am in my life. That where is this place? Where, where have you brought me? You know, this, is not, this was not the plan. This is not who I am. This is not my personality. I don't like speaking. You know, I, I like working. You know, but I fear where you have brought me. And I think that that really is the one thing about 
my life and my story that I could try to share with people. That even if you're afraid, even if you fear what God has brought you, even if you fear this grand vision or small vision that he has for your life, that if you lean into that, great things can happen. And LifeBank has been alive for four years. We've been running 24 hours, seven days a week, nonstop. Today, we had some guests uh, from the US. And today, I have been to Snake Island, uh, a, an island off of the coast uh, that has the poorest people in Lagos. Um, they, they don't have electricity. They don't have any, any services. And every single day, we deliver critical supplies to that island via boat and save people's lives and be the difference between life and death for a lot of people. At the same time, I just, I said I'm coming from, uh, from a hospital where we were scrubbing, um, we had to go to a, a, a theater, so we had to dress appropriately. And this is the best hospital in Lagos, you know. It's where the ambassadors and the doctor and, and, and the governors and all the people you know go to get health services. So today, I saw the vastness of the work we're doing at LifeBank, that we at LifeBank are, are rescuing people who are the poorest, but also the richest. So it's a good, you know, it's been a weird week for me because we had some guests and I had to be shoveling them from top up and down, up and down, and I'm going back to them now. But I think this week has shown me the, 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 the reality of the place God has brought me which is this place where we are really, really helping people, really being the difference. We've saved 6,000 lives since we started. We've delivered 18,000 units of blood with motorcycles. We've provided over 34 jobs to people who would not have jobs otherwise without this business. And it's really incredible. So yes, I fear where God has brought me. I still remain in fear. I still remain in awe of where I am in my life, of the sort of people I get to talk to, the sort of places I get to frequent, the sort of people who are on my phone. It's not me, it has to be somebody else, and that somebody else is God. Thank you. What a story. Thank you so much, Temi, for sharing. Fantastic, fantastic story. So without further ado, I'm going to call on Bolani next. Bolani, over to you. As I said earlier, Bolani is a UI UX designer, and she also runs a, sorry? Exactly, <laughs> to be sure, so you know I know. Um, and she also runs a social enterprise, so take it away. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Omo Bolani Bangwo. Um, I'm the founder of, let me check the time first, so that I'm on time, yeah. I'm the founder of Geneza Brand. Um, Geneza Brand um, is a branding agency here in Lagos. I'm also the founder of the Female Designer Movement, an initiative that helps or that trains women to design for free. Um, so I'm going to start with, I'm going to start from the beginning, I'll try to start from the beginning. I remember secondary school when I would, um, you know, 
I was that kid in class who was like the best in arts, who was like the best illustrator ever, who was really good. But then I saw my mates get the pat on their back when they do very well in mathematics and other subjects. But then I would make an illustration or I would paint and it would be like unbelievable, very, very good. But then no one is really paying attention to that. So I kind of developed um, a great deal of low self-esteem from that. I kind of felt like what I was doing didn't make sense. I kind of felt like art was not an expression of intelligence in any way. So I just felt invisible. Like I, I know I've mentioned this before. Um, so that whole experience changed my perception of myself, changed everything about me. And I would say that the experiences I had growing up kind of um, launched me into where I am now. I'm going to tell you about the things I'm doing now, but for you to really understand everything I'm saying now, I would like to talk about um, the things that happened before now, basically. So I remember the whole experience. So imagine going through school, doing everything. I studied mass communication. I didn't like mass communication, but then I just studied anyway, just to you know, fulfill a righteousness. I really wanted to study art, and I'm from a polygamous home, and we're plenty. And my dad, <laughs> I remember feeling um, Covenant University, and I was so happy. I told my friends that when we, when we get to the gate of Covenant University, you stay behind me so that we stay in the same room. Imagine. And then I got to my dad. I didn't even ask him, because I was so sure, you know? To my own little head, I was so sure. And I got to him, and he just laughed. And he said, he's like, you're going to write job again. Like, this is not going to happen. There's no, where's the money for this? And then I had to attend Lasso. And that destroyed everything. I mean, I saw my friends in Covenant University. And then uh, I was like, why is this happening? And then so, yeah, I resumed school, was doing everything. And let me tell you what I was doing in school. I would, after class, when my mates are carrying their jotters and you know, becoming the reporters that they're, they're trained to be and things like that, I will go to one art shop beside school to buy cardboard paper and start drawing comics. One lecturer's head that is very big, I'll just draw it and put speed bubble and just put it on the wall the next day and go and hide somewhere. People will be laughing. There was just that joy I felt doing that. That was just what I really wanted to do. But then I went through school went through the whole experience. It was just normal, nothing special. But I remember that during, before I got into school, that was a period I lost my mom. And so everything was happening at the same time. I, I, was in, I was doing a course I didn't like. I was in a school I didn't like. My mom was away for about six years. And then she got back, and then she died. And then I was like, God was, was I, 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 I didn't even call on God because I mean I didn't really know God. My dad is a Muslim, and so we I grew up in this environment where my grandmother would bring uh, traditional this stuff from like traditional worshiping and stuff like that. My dad would bring his tesbi. My mom is a Christian, so the combo of everything. I mean that was the environment I grew up in. So I just think that there was a God, like a central figure, but I really didn't know how to reach him. So I remember the entire first year of school was I was very depressed. I used to wonder why people were happy. Like, I, 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 used to, I used to ask myself questions like, why, why should I be happy? Like, how do people even, how is it even possible to be happy? Like, joy was like that thing somewhere that never existed in my world. And I went through that whole experience. Um, I was living in a place with some family members, and it was just terrible there. So I had everything working against me at that point. And so, because I was coming from an environment where I had like low self-esteem, I, I didn't know how to talk in front of people. I mean, this is a miracle, me talking in front of you guys today. It used to be so bad. I was, when I tried to, even when I tried to defend myself, 
like maybe someone does something to me, I'll start stuttering. And before, before I'm done, they'll just get away from me. You know, it was that bad. I was intimidated. I was afraid. I couldn't speak well. I was not as eloquent. And so it was that place where I just needed intervention. I needed help. I needed a way out. And so I got to school one morning, and then I had someone talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about this, this marvelous power somewhere, who's going to do amazing things. And then I asked like a couple of questions. In my mind, I'm like, if the Holy Spirit really exists, I'm going to find him. This is the person I need. And then I remember getting up that night. I waited for everyone to sleep. I was on my bed. And I told God, I said, God, I'm going to give you one hour. If you don't show up for me, it means that you don't exist anywhere. And, I, and that was the prayer I prayed, you know, in my small mind, in my childish mind. I remember the first one hour I prayed, nothing happened. Then I started crying. I said, God, you have to show up for me. Okay, I'm sorry I threatened you. Just show up anyway. And then within like, two, uh, like 10 minutes, um, I got filled with the Holy Ghost and I started speaking in tongues. And it was an experience. I felt like it was just strange. I, I knew I was speaking in a language I didn't understand. I knew that something was happening to me. I knew that it was strange. I knew that, okay, this is the Holy Spirit, but I didn't understand it. I spent a couple of weeks understanding how the Holy Spirit works and how, what I'm supposed to do with, with him and things like that. But the whole um, idea of teaching women, what I do currently, didn't come to me at that point. I was still going through life. I was still a bit scared. I was still, but there was something. I had the Holy Spirit. And you know the most amazing part about God? Even when I was going through all those things, even when I was going through low, so, so much low self-esteem, I was going through, I was like the most invisible person ever. I started, I started seeing visions of my, myself in the future. I started, having like, I started having these pictures just there. Like there was a time out, uh, I slept and I saw this woman, I saw this, this amazing woman speaking in front of people and I was coming from behind and I got to the front and oh my God, it was me, like the older version of me. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is who I'm going to be. Then I'm going to stick with you, God. That was just like a dream. I remember one time I, this was like the clearest of them all. I was about, I was preparing to go to school and then I just had this trance where I was on the bed and you know the way the globe is, the way the world is? You know that globe when it's turning and you have lights everywhere? So everything, everything was dark. And I saw this globe, like the world, and I saw like people everywhere, like connected with lines and things like that. I don't really know how to explain it, but I'll try to explain it the best way I can. And in that globe, in that whole connection of people all over the world, one came out very vividly, and I saw this girl. She's in my class, but we've never talked before. And then she came out of the globe and she was just like, like, a, like a screen. Do you understand what I'm saying, guys? So it kind of zoomed into the girl. And then she was saying, Bolanle, I want to kill myself. I want to commit suicide. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And then I woke up. And in my mind, I'm like, it's just a dream. I mean, one of those things. But it was just, you know that thing when you have an experience, I know that it's just not ordinary, but you can't explain it. And then I got to school the next day. And then I saw this girl. I, named, I remember her name very well. And then she walked past me. And I saw her. I was like, wow, what a coincidence. I mean, I saw this girl this morning. And then she called me. And then she said, but I want to talk to you. I'm like, OK, this is becoming really awkward. This is becoming really strange. And then she was like, Bolanle, I want to kill myself. The same thing that happened. At that point, everything I had read about, I mean, I was, I was reading the book by, um, uh, I was reading Good Morning Holy Spirit by um, Benny, 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 Benny. And so, 
all those things I read about, it was so strange. And, but I didn't tell her anything. She said the exact same thing. She said, I want to kill myself. I want to do this. I was so excited. I wanted to say, oh my God, I saw this this morning, but then I didn't. And then I prayed with her, and then that was it. And from that moment, I knew that God had called me to speak to you know, tons of people to, you know, talk to them. But I didn't really know how or why. But there's one thing for sure, that I was not a very confident person. I was not the kind of person who would want to be in front of the class. I was the person who wanted to hide. So it was just, it was just too difficult for me to imagine that I would be that person speaking in front of people. It was too hard. But that whole experience, I feel like sometimes when God wants to take us from where we are to where we are supposed to be, he puts those experiences in our lives just so that when we are discouraged, we can always remember them. But that whole experience changed my perception. I felt useful to God. I felt like my life actually made sense now. I felt like if God could show me someone's problem, if God could make me talk to someone and bring them out of a particular problem, then that was it. Then um, from that time to now, it's, um, it's been about 10 years. I mean, tr through those 10 years, nothing really happened. It was just me doing my job, living, holding on to God, you know, building my relationship with the Holy Spirit. And then last year, I had this idea to train women on design. And I remember I was telling God that, okay, that I don't think I can do this, but let me just, and the reason why I wanted to do that was, was this. Remember I said I grew up in an environment where art was not seen as an expression of intelligence. And everywhere I ever worked, I would see uh, male designers, I would see male designers, you know, and everywhere I ever worked, actually, I would design, and my works were almost like really, really, almost even better. You know, I had people say good things about my design. And I felt, okay, if I can actually do this, then what is stopping many women from actually doing design? Why are they afraid? And I realized that a lot of them are just scared because of, you know, because they've heard that design is technical, is for men, is stressful. So I decided I was going to train women on design for free. And then I started with, um, okay, I, I planned to, st okay, so what I did was I put up a flyer. My plan was to train about 15 women. And then I thought, well, we we're going to have like maybe 10 women register. And then I can even start in my living room. And then we put up the registration link and we had over 500. From then to now, we've trained over 1,600 women for free in Lagos, Ibadan, Liberia, and Akure, which we did recently. It was, it's be okay, so the whole, the whole experience has been life-changing for me. Why? Because all I did was to do exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted me to do, was to, and unlike my other experiences where you would, I'll praise God and I'll have this trance or have this dream or maybe not dreams, but have this peace of mind or have this experience, it was different because it just came like an idea, a simple idea. It didn't even come with all the, you know, it came as a simple idea and that has actually changed my life. I've been... I've, been, I've had the opportunity of speaking on panels with people who went to the best of schools in the world. I've, had, I've received emails from people who went to the best of art schools, but when they see my works, they're like, Bolanle, please train me. And for me, I always wonder, like, I went to Lasso. And, and this whole experience has taught me that it's not really a matter of where you're coming from or what you've been through, or who you think you were, or who you think you are currently. It's about where you're going to. And it might not be the next day. It might take five years, six years, 10 years. But you'd be amazed that as long as you're with God, as long as your root is in God, it's going to take you from where you are to where you're supposed to be. It might not be immediate, but eventually. I've also had the opportunity to get featured on different platforms. I mean, when those things started coming, 
I was so afraid. I mean, when I got the BBC interview and I got channels and I got um, Guardian newspaper, I got the Tribune, I got Cool FM, they were all coming. I was like, oh my God, is it not, is it not just design? I'm like, God, I can't do this. And sometimes I'll go for these interviews being, I'll be so scared. And they'll, be, they'll just be, they'll all be clapping and everything, thinking they're expecting this amazing Bolani. And in my mind, I'm just like, God, please help. My hands are actually shaking. And this whole experience, as like I said before, has been life-changing. And I'm still on that journey. I was asking God recently about the next phase of my life. And the things that he showed me, the things that I've heard from God are even scarier. So now I understand that it's not really, the journey is not about the destination. It's actually about the journey itself. So you just have to keep going and going and going and going. Don't worry about the destination. Just keep going. Keep following the process. I'm really excited about where I'm going to. I'm grateful to God for where I am right now. But like I said before, if you're in a state right now where you feel like the gifts you have or the person you are is not looking like the person you want to be, do not look at yourself. Because if you look at yourself, you'll be afraid. You have to look at God. Because when you are weak, God is strong. And if God is in you, he's going to make you strong. In short, the weaker you are, the better. Because when you are weak, People see that you are weak. And when God comes and when God takes control of your life, they are able to see God, not you. And that's where I am right now. Thank you very much. How are you all doing? So um, my name is Bambo Akoni, and I'm the founder and CEO of Making of Champions. Um, we're sports... And uh, we're a sports media and management company, um, which was set up to try to change sports in Nigeria, to try to change athletics, to be precise, in Nigeria. So um, how did we all get started? I, I hope to kind of just tell you a bit about how this vision came about and, and, and share how hopefully you can also apply it um, to your lives. Um, it's incredible that... Um, it's funny, I think uh, Bolani stole my thunder because I was going to open by saying that I've studied at some of the best schools in the world. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I have, you know, I, uh, I went to Cambridge for my undergrad. I studied chemical engineering. And then I did business school in America after um, about six years in investment banking in London. Which is why a lot of my friends never could understand why I packed it all in. I left a consulting job in South Africa at one of the top three consulting firms in the world. Why did I leave all that and move back to Nigeria to start this sports company? I mean, who does sports in Nigeria? You know, and um, you know, sometimes when God wants to get your attention, he, he sometimes gives you some kind of affliction or trouble that you might not realize what the purpose was for that. So um, I'm there in South Africa, living my best life, playing tennis with my friends, and um, I tore my Achilles tendon, you know, and it was um, off the back of having had a couple of knee surgeries. So what did I do? I um, took time off work, I had to have surgery, I was at home for about a month. That, that period is when it was quiet enough for me to think, okay, the Olympics just ended 2012. Nigeria didn't get a medal. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my friends at work would, would tease me. We'd have um, work Olympics on a Friday. 
and I'd win a medal and they'd say, Bambo, I guess that's the only medal Nigeria won this year, right? <laughs> you know, so it was just something that was eating at me. Like, why? We used to win medals in the 80s and the 90s. We're not doing that anymore. What is the problem? So my time at home of work, it gave me time to think about, okay, my next project, my next consulting project was in Lagos. First time I was going to work in Lagos, this was 2012. Echo 2012, the sports festival was just coming up. So I came up with this idea, why don't I make a documentary to show Nigerians that we're really good at this sport, athletics, and we can be the best in the world. Without any media background, I literally had to Google how to make a documentary. That's how I got started. Um, nine months later, I had um, shot all over the world. I had tracked down Olympic medalists from Nigerian Olympic medalists who are now living in Portugal, Spain, um, USA. We went to Jamaica to find out why they're so fast. Um, and, you know, little did I know at the time that I was doing the research to start the business. After I'd seen everything, after I'd spoken to everyone, it just occurred to me that, you know what, this is something that needs to happen in Nigeria. No one well, if I don't want to be old and gray and wonder what could have happened, maybe I have to just go and do it, you know. Um, so luckily at the time, no dependence, no relationship. I can take all this risk by myself. So what did I do? I quit my job, went to the UK, finished making the film. I needed about three months to finish making the film. And I moved back to Nigeria to start uh, the business in 2013. Um, with a 75, armed with a 75-minute film, went round, you know, Nigerian hustle, looking for money here and there, trying to start this business. And um, just when I was at the point of saying, okay, I've given myself almost a year, time to go back to paid employment, um, I found some investors who saw the film and said, okay, you know, we have to, we have to help make this happen. And that's how Making of Champions was born. Um, six years later, um, well, two years after that, we started the MOC Track Club. Um, a lot of the Olympic medalists that I met while making the film, I ended up hiring them as coaches. So today our head coach is Deji Aliu, he's an Olympic medalist. Another one of our coaches is Gloria Loze, who is also an Olympic medalist for Nigeria. And um, in three to four years of running the club, I think we've won about 52 medals in total, about 18 international medals and 34 um, national medals. Um, and how did we, how did this all come together? You know, we, we live by what I call the three Ds. Um, discover, develop, deliver. So first we have to discover the athletes. We went around the country looking for the best athletes in the nation and we brought them to Lagos. We actually did a reality show um, called Top Sprinter to find the best athletes. Um, and that was very exciting. And as a matter of fact, some of the athletes discovered on that show in 2015, today are national champions, African medalists. Um, so that was very exciting. Then we have to develop the athletes. Um, this is the part that nobody thinks about. There's a competition and everyone's like, oh, you know, this person won. And that's where it ends. The development phase is the 
is where all the magic happens. It's what everyone is doing abroad that we're not doing here. We want to start training for the Olympics four months before when it is an eight-year process, so it's a lifelong process. You know, and then deliver phase is very simple. You've arrived at that top stage in the world, and now it's time to deliver the medals, you know, bring home the glory. So I thought that, you know, when I think about vision, I think those three Ds are pretty apt when you think about vision, figuring out your vision in life and how to apply it. First, you've got to discover what that vision is, you know. And for me, God had to slow me down, right, you know, um, to be at home, not able to go to work, for me to really think about, okay, what would I do about this problem, right? So I think the hardest part for most of us is even just identifying what that vision is, you know. And it's, um, I mean, you think about Joseph, he had his dreams, you know, you think about Samuel, he heard God when he was, you know, young and he didn't know it was God initially. You know, you think about Abraham who, when God told him the vision, he was like, nah, this is too big for me to comprehend, you know. But I think that's what a vision should be. It should be bigger than what we can even think or comprehend. But the question is, when something comes to us as a as a visionary plan or something we want to do, how do we even know whether to even try to do it, right? Because, you know, when I think about it, what I, what I did was not very logical to most people. Most people, like your vision is not necessarily something that someone else will understand. You know, like Temi talked about quitting her job and going to start the life bank. So, Sometimes it's not what others will understand, but at the same time, it still has to be something that, that ultimately makes sense. You know, that you can't just um, throw caution to the wind and go and do it. So when I talk about developing the vision now, what I'm talking about is, you know what, if you're an entrepreneur, you have a business idea, do a business plan, right? And I meet so many people who think that they don't need to do that. But that is the place where you would discover, for example, if that vision or business or idea has legs or if it doesn't or if it needs to adjust or develop or grow. You know, much like um, developing athletes, um, it's um, developing a vision, I think, is, is a journey. It, it changes and it adapts um, to, to reality. You know, and um, personally, I love Joseph's story because Joseph experienced so much hardship from when he was sold into slavery to when he eventually became governor. And sometimes we have to think about those moments where we're developing our vision, right? But sometimes the hardship, like, like what I had, an injury. If I hadn't had that injury, I probably wouldn't be here doing this right now. So sometimes the hardships you're going through is exactly what you need to discover the vision that you're, you have to go forth to. And then I think the final part is, is delivering the vision. You know, um, again, I love Joseph's story because 
people don't realize how much of a consummate businessman this guy was by the time he became governor of Egypt. And, um, and for me, the message there is that when you've done all the work, you've discovered what your vision or purpose is, you've developed it, you're ready to run with it. Um, you know, I think you've got to you've got to be ready, ready to run with it. You know, um, right now, um, you, you know, it's been very tough for the six years we've been doing this. Um, we've gotten to a stage where. People think we are doing so well, and we have all the sponsors, but we still don't have what we need, you know. And um, that's a tough place to be when you're providing athletes for the nation. You're, sometimes you're flying these athletes to go and represent the nation, but then you're not getting the credit sometimes, you know. Um, right now, if you Google Athletic Federation of Nigeria, they have, um, they have two factions. I think uh, it started in football. They had two factions at one point, then in basketball. Now they've brought it to athletics. And I'm calm because I know that whichever faction is in charge eventually, my athletes are still going to represent the nation. Five of my athletes have done so, so far. Um, I'm glad to say that four or five of them were looking at being at the Olympics next year. And. Um, and I've been telling people that, yeah, about 10 of my athletes who will represent Nigeria next year, maybe five at the Olympics, five at the World Juniors. But this week, I was sitting down and really, in fact, I went to their training on Monday. And I always get excited when I go to their training. And I realized, actually, this is, this is the deliver phase. This is like next year, 15 or 16 of these athletes are actually going to wear the colors of Nigeria. You know, so. You know, it's not just about winning medals and representing the country. Um, you know, sometimes one could feel like maybe I'm living a young boy's dream. You know, the young boy that uh, used to go to the school library to read the back pages, the sports pages, that used to dream about uh, uh, owning uh, shooting stars of Ibadan one day, you know? So sometimes it feels like you're living that young boy's dream, you know, but the reality is the impact of the work we're doing um, is something that keeps me going, you know. So um, when I was in London two years ago for the World Championships, I met a senior manager at the IAAF, now called World Athletics, and he, he met me, he was so excited to meet someone from Nigeria, but then he said to me, oh, you know what? Nigerian athletics, like you guys are only known for three things. Drug abuse, sexual harassment of athletes, and age cheating. That was it. And I'm like, okay, so this is the view of the world to Nigeria. But guess what, we here, we go about like, none of these things are issues. You know, so I'm very proud to say that something that we're very, that's very, very important to us is making sure that the athletes under our care don't, are not subject to some of these issues. You know, um, We made a policy immediately, our athletes all have to use their real age. We mentored them, we encouraged them and their parents to make, make them do that. You know, this is your foundation in life. You can't be uh, 
you can't be 40 years old and pretending that you are still 35 or 30. They don't think about it at the young age of life. You know, um, in terms of protecting our young athletes, especially the female athletes, um, you know, we, we actually rent a, a girl's house and a boy's house where we put these um, athletes into, and we have a matron, and a, well, we don't call her a matron, but you know, we have a manager there who looks after them 24-7, you know. Um, in terms of drug abuse, you know, I'm working with some of the top um, Olympic medalists for Nigeria who never had any kind of drug infractions, and they've been able to steer our athletes away from that. So, so really, um, I'm really excited about the next phase, the deliver phase, because um, you know next year is going to be uh, our first Olympics. It's going to be the jump-off point where um, the whole country and perhaps the whole world will finally hear about what we're doing at Making of Champions. Thank you very much. Also didn't tell you is that I'm an athlete who's about to be discovered. I'm still talking to him about that. So we shall continue that conversation after this. Um, so just a okay, so now we're going to go on to our panel session where I'm going to get to have a short, quick conversation with Bonali and Bambo. So if you don't mind joining me on the stage, that would be fantastic. Please. All right, great. So I'll start off with Bambo. Um, I think there's one D that you didn't talk about, which is discouragement. I think everyone who's tried to accomplish, wow, this is, okay. Anyone who's tried, wow, the, okay, so bright. Anyone who's, who's trying to accomplish anything at some point faces some kind of discouragement. So in your case, how do you, how do you deal with discouragement on this journey of making champions? Well, actually, there's a few more Ds I didn't talk about. There's deploy, there's drive. Oh, wow, okay. But I said, let me just start with three today. Okay, cool. <laughs> but discouragement, you know, it's, it's a really important thing to think about because um, not everybody is going to agree with your vision or what you want to do. Um, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I've even had, um, I've even had a former medalist for Nigeria tell me in a very public forum that these your athletes, I mean, if my kids were running these times, I would tell them to go and do something else, you know. Wow. So it's, um, it will happen, you know. It will happen that sometimes people will not believe what you're doing or will not see where you're going. You know, what, what's interesting about what we're doing is that we set out to prove at the beginning that, okay, there's no magic in America, right? So whatever they are doing in America, by the way, the Jamaicans discovered about 20 years ago there was no magic in America. They started doing it at home. So when I went to Jamaica and I saw that, okay, wow, these guys are doing it all by themselves. And then when you say both runs fast, everybody says it's Jamaican yams. Yeah, okay, we, too, we have yams here. So, so I just, you know, I had that conviction that this can be done in Nigeria. It is not rocket science. I'm proud to say that today our best athletes are faster than the athletes of their age in America, in the, in the uh, NCAAs. They're faster than athletes who left here faster than them and went to America, and now they've gone past them, right? So in terms of discouragement, I think you've got to 
stand firm on what you know God has told you. You've got to, um, you've got to follow your conviction about what you've purposed to do. And I think most importantly, you've got to be able to receive the real advice from, um, from the fake advice. Let me put it that way. Because sometimes they can be cloaked in the same way. You know, um, yeah, that's, that's what I would say about discouragement. Okay, fantastic. So one more D that we've addressed today. Balani, over to you. So in many ways, your story is like Joseph's, right? You know, you have all these dreams. I was so jealous. I'm like, how come I never dream? Um, but so you have these dreams and you still have these dreams. You say you have visions of what's to come. And with Joseph's story in the Bible, we see how Joseph still went through a process of training. For you, what has your process of training looked like? How do you consciously steward these gifts and talents that God has given you to actually see the visions and the dreams that he's given you come to life? Okay. Um, so I, I think this is what God did. Um, so before, instead of taking me straight on to that big interview, um, in channels, television, or all those platforms. I kind of went through that process of, um, you know, okay, yes, I think, let me put it this way. When I was in school, I was the, I was the pastor in my fellowship. So I had to deal with people. So I remember telling God I did want to serve in fellowship. I was not interested in it. But then it was that process. Of, so I was in that place where even though I was like the pastor, supposed to be the one leading the people, you'll see some of them not do what they're supposed to do, but I'll just keep quiet because I didn't want to face anyone. So I kind of went through a, a process of the process of being, being scared to um, approach people and see what I'm supposed to say. That process went by. And then when I also got to NYSC, I kind of tried, I tried avoiding it as much as possible, but I was also made like the pastor um, in um, NCCF. So, but at that point, it was easier because I'd gone through the experience before. So it was able, I was able to talk to people more, but this were like maybe 10, 15, 20 people. So I feel like those years, those, during that, uh, those long periods, God kind of took me through a process of learning to, you know, stand my ground, learning to talk in front of people. Because right now, I. I'm in trainings with like 500 people in a class and I'm not even bothered. I mean, I'm just talking. And I try to remember those days when I would see 15 people and I'll start sweating, you know? So I feel like those years, those experiences, fellowship, talking to people kind of like built me, made me ready for, for where I am now, basically. Fantastic. So just taking on opportunities to learn and grow, stretch opportunities, help, help you train for the vision that God has given you. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Do we have any questions from the floor? Anyone have any questions? Yes, we do have a question over there. And the microphone is coming to you. Oh, yeah, sure, please. Okay. Hi. Um, so my question is for... Um, Bambor, um, you mentioned something. You said not getting the credits um, when it comes to training athletes for Nigeria. And I know, I, I, I think I kind of believe because I work in sports media as well. Um, so how, how do you handle, like especially when it comes to vision and purpose, how do you handle not getting the acknowledgement that you think, you know, you deserve? Or, yeah, like how easy is it to 
continue powering through and just keep doing what you're doing when you're not getting the right kind of acknowledgement and recognition for what you're doing? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Thanks for the question. I mean, I, I think it's um, it's about conviction and knowing where you're going and the plan, the long-term plan. Um, you know, not getting credit for our work is something which I expected to happen. So, but, you know, I think the approach we've used is, you know what, knowing, okay, what, first of all, what I love about athletics is that if you are first, you are first, right? In football, we can all argue about who is the best left back, who is the best striker from now to kingdom come. Is it Osime or is it um, uh, Kelechi or whoever, right? But in athletics, if you are first, you are first. But the catch in athletics is if you are fourth and you are picking four for the relay team, they may pick number six and nobody will fight for you, right? So the goal in terms of getting recognized for our work, like we came into this game knowing that, okay, we have to be number one. If you are number one, nobody can take it away from you. You will make the team. Um, you know, we've worked with, I mean, we've, we've seen, I would say, four sports ministers now while I've been doing this. We've worked with two different athletics federations. Um, and we work closely with the federation um, with what, you know, with what we're doing. And in terms of not getting credit, sometimes you, you, how do I put it? You don't complain, but you just keep giving and giving and giving. So they have great athletes from your team. Oh, suddenly now you're sponsoring a competition. You know, we sponsored the national juniors before. We've created our own competition because there were no competitions for, for athletes. So we just kept pushing, pushing, pushing. Not getting the credit, keep pushing. Okay, small credits in the press. Suddenly, okay, we went to the World Championships. We're the only media in Nigeria there. So suddenly, boom, everybody's calling me. Channels, TVC, everybody wants to talk there. But, you know, I think the goal is to keep pushing until it is so that it cannot be hidden anymore, right? Um, and for us, something special happened, I think, recently. Um, the new minister came on board in August, and immediately he took notice of everything we're doing. You know, um, he started during the African Games in Rabat. I wasn't there, but my team was there. He met them there. He reached out, made contact. And, you know, back in October, he actually came and visited the team and brought all the press with him, you know. so. It was an amazing point of recognition, something which maybe should have happened four, five, six years ago. But guess what? Now we're entering that deliver phase. Now the country is looking for how are they going to win medals at the Olympics? My athletes are almost ready. You know, so it's, um, it's really exciting. I think the answer is that you just have to keep pushing until that recognition um, cannot be denied you. You know. Um, Another story, one of our best athletes, he came second in the national championship when he was thought he was going to win in the 200 meters. And um, let's just say that the selector somehow used it to push him out of the team. He didn't go to the African Games. I mean, worst moment of his life, right? The next day, I called him to my office. I said, look, 
better pick yourself up because by tomorrow you could be going back to Europe. He had been in Italy for about a month before coming back for the trials. And um, funny thing, he went back to Europe the next day. By Saturday, he was running again, and he won the race in, in Europe against you know, top athletes in Europe. And one of the guys he was, that was selected ahead of him for the team was last in that same race, right? And so it was like, you know, if you don't want to recognize, it's going to happen, you know. Um, we've done the work. My, my coach, Coach Dejali, he said to me um, this week that, Bambo, look, we're doing something that nobody has ever done in Nigeria. We're going to get the results that nobody has ever gotten here. So that's what we're working towards next year. Fantastic. Anyone else like me looking forward to the Olympics? I'm just so ready to finally be able to say yes, a Nigerian won something. As an athlete or? Both. Thank you very much. Both. <laughs> But thank you both so, so, so much. Really appreciate your time and appreciate hearing the stories. Hopefully, any more questions? No more questions? Yeah, well, okay, great. One question. Sure, go for it. Okay, um, I'm quite impressed with what you're doing. Um, I believe one day Nigeria is going to be like Jamaica, you know, and all these great countries. Uh, why are you not doing football? Like, sorry to ask. It's a good question with a very simple answer. I mean, everybody else is doing football. Nobody's doing athletics. But, but it's, that's not the only reason. The reason is because as much as I love football, I told you about the boy who dreamed about owning shooting stars of Ibadan. As much as I love football, I did not see an opportunity like athletics. Athletics is like the low-hanging fruit for Nigeria. All the fastest sprinters in the world are all of West African descent. The Jamaicans, the African Americans, the Caribbeans are all from West Africa. In fact, a third of the Jamaicans are Igbo. So when I see um, Usain Bolt running, I'm like, that's an Igbo man. <laughs> no, it's true, you know. And so for me, it was the opportunity, it was the opportunity I saw that wouldn't let me rest about athletics. Like, this thing, Nigeria can control in five years' time if we want to do it. And just to give you an example, six years ago, um, a girl called Abele Chuku Abakpongu left Nigeria six years ago to Bahrain. Today, she's the world champion in 400 meters, and her name is Sawa Ednasa. And it happened in six years, right? So my athletes, we've been training for three to four years. Right? And by God's grace, they're on that same path because what they're doing in Bahrain, nobody has ever tried to do it in Nigeria. So with football, you are a small part of a huge pie, although frankly, the pie is not that big. I mean, if, if Neymar can leave Brazil for 50 million pounds and we're still celebrating about $100,000 in football in Nigeria, we've not really started in football either. But in athletics, I can't, you know, I've got three athletes in the top 100 in the world in their events. They're already competing in Europe. And if they get to the Olympics and start making waves, then we've created a new system or industry for athletes in Nigeria. Football will look after itself. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you both so, so, so much. Really appreciate your time. And if, like me, you just feel like having a conversation with God about your life, 
and what dreams you're not having. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was going to say something. Sure, about... go for it. Okay, so I was going to say something about, because you kept mentioning dreams. She dreamt about me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'd like to say that if you, um, okay, I know you mentioned dreams and I had trans and those experiences, but I'll say that most times when you're starting out with God, it might do those things just to get your attention. But when you go through the journey, you might actually not see anything. I mean, for most of the time, those years, I had to like rely on the word of God. So if you have an idea, you don't have to wait for a dream. It might decide to show your um, the other person dreams and it might Yours might just be ideas, just pictures in your in your head, and then just thinking about it. It doesn't really invalid. It doesn't mean that you know it is not valuable. So all you need to do is actually to hold on to the word of God. He has put an idea in your heart. You know that this is just impressed upon you. You have peace of mind about it. Hold on to the word of God. Rely on your inner weakness because that's like the surest. I mean, dreams can fail. A lot of things can fail. Do, do you, you hear a voice and those things? But if you rely on the word of God, rely on what He has told you in His word. Rely on the um, your inner witness that is the surest way to know what god has in store for you thank you um so we're just going to go into a time of prayer right now i'll give everyone a few minutes to just talk to god and have a very honest conversation about where you are right now on your purpose journey on your life journey if you feel like God has already started planting seeds in your heart, talk to God about those seeds, those dreams. If you feel like your heart is a pretty, clear, empty canvas right now, let God know that you're open. You're open to having him start planting seeds in your heart. If you think you've messed things up so badly, trust me, you haven't. You can never feel free to... to repent to try and re to, to reconcile with God and let him know that you're, you're ready for another try you're ready for another attempt if you want to pray in English feel free to pray in English if you want to pray in the spirit you can do that as well sometimes it's so hard to to pray when you don't even really know the right words to pray so feel free to pray in your spirit you can even just sigh and Hum, whatever it is that works for you, but just make sure you're connecting with God and communicating with Him in this moment. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Heavenly Father, we're all your children. 
We all come from different backgrounds, different stories, different experiences. But we've all just come individually and as a church to place our lives before you. Lord, we see our flaws, we see our strengths, we see our weaknesses. God, we're so, so clear on the areas where we desperately need your help. Lord, we see that the dreams and the visions that you've already given us or that you're going to give us in the days to come, we know we can't accomplish them on our own. And so in this moment, Lord, you place our lives in your hands as five loaves and two fish, maybe even less. And we just ask that you multiply all that we are and all that we have for your glory to, to bring the dreams and visions that you have for our lives to come to pass in Jesus' name. We thank you so much, Lord, and we just want you to know that ultimately our entire lives are for you, as you know. Lord, we want to live for you. We want to live for your glory. We want to live to make you famous. We want to live our lives getting to know you more and more so we can spend eternity with you. And we just thank you so much, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we've prayed. For, for Bambo and Bolande and Temi who shared today, Father, we thank you because you who have begun the good work in them will be faithful to complete it. Thank you, Father, because indeed there are even greater days and years ahead for them in Jesus' name. We thank you so much, O Lord, and we're so very grateful. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen. Thank you for listening to a message from the LifePoint Church. To download more free messages, please visit www.soundcloud.com forward slash LifePointNG. 